That was the piece that made me laugh a lot the first time I heard it, and still does. It's called Careful Shouts for Alto Sax and Piano, performed and commissioned by Timothy McAllister and Liz Ames, and composed by our guest Nina Shaker. Nina's program note reminds us of a simple truth. Time after time, we can never resist the careful shouts of a good saxophonist. Welcome to Relevant Tones. I'm your host, Stephen Anthony Rawson, and today we are listening to my conversation with Nina Shaker. Nina is working on a PhD in music composition at Princeton, and since 2021 has been the composer-in-residence for young concert artists, and we're very excited to have her on the show today. Nina, I'd like to start by asking about your piece, Luminar, which is being performed by the Seattle Symphony this week and next week. You wrote this piece back in 2020 for the USC Thornton Symphony. Um, Where did the idea for Lumina come from? I wrote this piece in several iterations. I began with the chamber orchestra version of this piece, and the whole piece had a really different form. Some similar ideas, but it was like in a totally different structure. And then, you know, I was a master's student when I was writing this piece. And, you know, for a young composer, it's really hard to get big orchestra opportunities and to have orchestra music played. And, you know, they had this opportunity to have USC's orchestra play it. And so I remember I like reworked this whole piece into this full orchestra. And what its current form is, it really quickly, (laughs) I think I probably reworked it in about a week and a half and it was like such a I didn't leave my apartment <laughs> for six days and I wrote a lot of new music for it it, it totally experimented with the form and, and that's I think it kind of birthed this new version that I think works a lot better than its original version and you know as a young composer when we're thinking about orchestration uh when you have so many different forces in the orchestra this kind of an opportunity to think about like your massive color palette, right? You know, as a painter, mm-hmm. they have all these, these different colors they can work with. And with the orchestra, you have all these different kinds of sounds, different kinds of timbres that you can work with, which you don't always get to have. And so I was thinking as a young composer, like how can I experiment with orchestration in a way that maximizes the amount of different kinds of sounds I could get. So I was thinking about contrast in this piece. I was thinking about light versus dark. And that's really what this piece is about, about contrast and making whatever my orchestration is mimic the sounds that I want to achieve. So for light, I was thinking a lot in terms of bright kinds of sounds and things like harmonics and the strings, things like these sharp attacks, these kind of glistening sort of sounds. And then for dark, I was trying to think of, like, how can I create shadows in the orchestra? How can I think about, like, murky sorts of sounds? And to do that, I use something called microtones. I make these dense clusters of, of tunings, you know, with different tuning systems and these really dense harmonies. So this piece is really about that. It's, it's about light versus dark and how can I achieve all these different kinds of sounds just in the orchestra? I watched, uh, I guess not an interview, but it was a little video that you had made for the New York Phil where you talked about also your influence of Hindustani classical music, particularly the, the importance of silence in this piece. Um, how does that play a role? Yeah, so silence is an important facet to my work in general. And I think myself, I'm an Indian American and a lot of the music I grew up listening to was also Indian classical music, like Hindustani music, Carnatic music. And in a lot of those performances, they're structured in a way where one person plays like this figure that's improvised and then the ensemble really has to listen to that performer and kind of mimic what they're doing, follow along, even just like the way they use melodies and rhythms is a lot more space in certain parts of like the performance and I was kind of mimicking that in this piece it doesn't really follow all of the traditional structure of of like Hindustani rags for instance which is like their main scale structure in, in Hindustani music but it does kind of follow a similar pitch language similar kind of structure of building from one small motive out into a larger phrase and 
and this idea of silence is a big part of the piece. I mean, the first two minutes, <laughs> there's a lot of silence in, in it. And it was actually interesting because when L.A. Phil did it at the Hollywood Bowl and there was an outdoor performance and in the silences and an outdoor <laughs> performance, you know, you'll hear planes flying by or you'll hear like picnickers eating. And, and that's part of the piece. I think yeah. it's great for us to really savor those moments. Yeah, absolutely. How has this piece changed for you? It's got a lot of performances over the years since 2020. How has the meaning of it changed for you, if at all? Yeah, it's changed a lot. You know, when I wrote this piece, I really didn't think I would get performances. I mean, this also I wrote, you know, I wrote as a master's student. I wrote in February of 2020, and that's when it was premiered, which is right before the pandemic. And I remember when the world shut down, I was like, okay, <laughs> I don't know if this piece is going to have a life, but that's okay. Like, I don't know what's going to happen with our orchestra concerts in general, you know, at that at that moment when everything was shut down and we couldn't be in the same space with other performers, much less like 100, 200 people on stage. So I was really lucky to, to have had these orchestras eventually be able to perform again and then decide to pick this up on their seasons. And, you know, for me, it's been kind of a evolution of my own growth just watching it have its own life you know a lot of my beginnings of my orchestral career have really stemmed with this piece and my first professional experiences like even just working with an orchestra and being like a, a working composer and in those kinds of settings was through this piece so to me this piece is really like I don't know it's like watching your adolescence and like growing up into like an adult composer like I really I feel that with this piece and, and it's nice seeing like every orchestra interpret it so differently mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of the nature of the piece because there's so many silences because there's so much about you know I have these basic phrases that any performer can really put their own heart into and um, different conductors will phrase things differently too and, and move things along in terms of the pacing really differently and I really enjoy just watching each artist like every artist I work with they all have their own unique artistry and, and it's just been a really wonderful experience yeah it seems to me too and I don't know if this is my idea or if maybe I even heard you say this Lumina seemed to come at quite an interesting or appropriate moment I feel like you know the big question mark that we've all we all experienced everything shutting down felt like darkness the lights going out and and really the struggle to find light or to find hope was really difficult after the pandemic reflecting on it does does that narrative kind of work now yeah, yeah. it's funny because i didn't know i mean nobody knew right. all of this would happen right and when i was writing the piece you know this is it's so interesting because I think most of my other pieces, I really have a clear concept, a clear social concept of yeah. what a lot of my music is really rooted in identity. And this was one of those pieces where I was really not thinking about that. I was really yeah. just thinking about the music and, and thinking about like, oh, how can I be as creative as possible with the orchestra? And now when I look back after the pandemic, after this total social climate in the world and in the U.S., with George Floyd, with the political sphere, we, you know, with all of these different things happening in the world. And this idea of silence also is like very relevant now, this idea of listening and, and identity exchange and making space for other people's voices instead of talking over each other and assuming that you know somebody else's experiences without actually just hearing it from them. All of that is actually really related to this piece, even though I didn't really think about that at the time. And yeah, it's been interesting, This, you know, so much of our lives is constantly being bombarded with sound and noise all the time. People yelling at each other, you know, we look at cable news, you know, and this is like the first, just having that space to really breathe and listen to each other, I think is, is really important. So it's interesting when I hear the piece now, it's nice to watch audiences kind of the way they engage with the piece. It's interesting to watch.
was Lumina, performed only days ago by the Seattle Symphony with conductor Lina Gonzalez Granados. We were really fortunate to get this audio so quickly, so I want to give a big thank you to everyone at Seattle Symphony for procuring it and allowing us to use it. Let's get back to my conversation with Nina. I want to pivot a little bit and talk about um, some of your remixes and your video art. You've remixed Maggie Dave, Gloria Estefan, you know, Casey Musgraves, and, and Judy Garland, and also this anonymously composed medieval English round. Um, it's such a great medium, remixing, is for retelling or, or restyling an idea, or even uh, taking a cultural artifact and like critiquing it. I'm curious, what are some of the things that you like about remixing that are different from pen and paper composition? You know, I think growing up, especially being first generation, my parents were immigrants. I was exposed to such a wide variety of music growing up of different, like just even the way we absorbed American culture was really from this kind of piecemeal, like conglomerate of content that we were, were absorbing. And I think that when I think about remixing, a lot of that kind of relates to just my experience growing up. You know, for me, remixing and sampling in general, I think is really about identity and identity exchange and like this idea of what is the context of a certain sound and what does it mean to somebody else, but then how might that be different relating to me and my own experience and I might hear something a totally different way than somebody else. And and then, of course, there's power dynamics and all of that, which, you know, a lot of hip-hop music really revels in that. And that's kind of the root of a lot of what their work is. So with this, like, I mean, even things like Gloria Estefan, for me, it's so funny because Gloria Estefan is such a different artist than me. But then I really admired, she was one of the first pioneering Latin artists, the way she her body presence on stage. It was just so confident. And it was always something I really admired. And with that piece, for instance, I, by me remixing Gloria Stefan and me making this video for it and all about my own body image, then I, it was like a really eye opening experience. And it, it's like not necessarily about Gloria anymore. It's about what is Gloria's relationship to me and vice versa even though we've never met. <laughs> I think with all of my remixes that I do, I try to think about work that way and just kind of that exchange between experiences. And also, I think I really enjoy working with electronics, working with video. I think that's something that was a big goal of mine during the pandemic. And I felt like, you know, when concerts were not happening and the sort of traditional ways of music making that a lot of the classical sphere especially always did for so long, I was like, why are we not taking advantage of this? You know, I kept seeing all these Zoom concerts that were really rigid, I think, and I, rather than it being this creative opportunity to try to do something new and experiment really radically with how we distribute performances and absorb them and that's really when I started getting into video. So that's become a really big part of my work now.
want to ask about, I think this was the first piece of yours I ever heard, which is Above the Fray, was commissioned by the Jack Quartet in National Sawdust. The string orchestra version of this is being performed by Seattle. I think it's scheduled in February and March, which is kind of coincidental. In your program, you talk about warping and distorting box prelude uh, from the first cello suite and unraveling its passages into threads that transform, detune, and degrade. Um, can you tell me where Above the Fray came from? You know, that piece is, again, rooted in this idea of sampling. And to me, when I think of sampling, I just think of the act of taking some other artist's material and the context of it and transforming it to something else. And that doesn't necessarily have to be just through like a typical like production standpoint. It could be even through like something notated. And with that piece, it was really rooted at partly through the pandemic and me thinking of, you know, a lot of orchestras were doing these click track pieces at the time. And I didn't think people were using this idea of like remote performance and to their advantage. Like you could actually like what happens if everybody's playing on a totally different click track, you know, like what, like that could be really fun. So it kind of stemmed through that. But then also around that time we had all of the racial injustice protests um, with George Floyd. And I felt like a lot of classical organizations were, kind of responding in this default way of like, we will heal everyone by playing Bach, which is like the most tone deaf response. And I, I just thought it was such a ridiculous thing that I thought it would be interesting to actually just take Bach and, and not only just, just Bach in general, but like the most quintessential piece of classical music, the only piece my parents know, <laughs> and then transform it in, in this way. And, and so I warped it in like 12 different layers. And with that piece in the string quartet version, uh, each player has three different warpings of this Bach material. And um, they're all, they move through it at different rates. Some of them do some detuning at different rates. Some of them play with rhythms very differently. And, and it's also like a time-based score. So it's, they have some flexibility by playing remotely. And um, yeah, so this piece was, was really a, a really interesting experiment for me mm-hmm. also, because I had never written anything like that before. And it also kind of enabled me to let go of my own reins of like, the control of the composer and, and kind of giving it up to um, the performer to have it be a little bit freer in the way it's put together than a lot of other music that I normally write. And I learned a lot from that, that piece and it kind of helped push a lot of the pieces I wrote since then. I had an interesting listening experience with it because I, I listened to it before reading your program notes and instantly caught the opening of the, of the prelude. And then uh, kind of laughed a little bit because I could, you know, see it being warped. Um, but then it it completely takes on a life of its own. Uh, it, it feels like um, you know a, a new life form is is created, which is something you do talk about in your in your program notes. Yeah, I like with that piece that you can't tell if I love Bach or if I hate Bach. Yeah. Like it's yep. like you, and that's kind of the point. I mean, yes. I also, you know, growing up, I, I did play a lot of Bach growing up, you know, and I was a young pianist. I, and that was a big part of my education too. And I, even though I didn't always relate to it in maybe the way that other people did, but I, I don't know. I think it's interesting, like that ambiguity. And I think that's something that drives a lot of my work now where, you can't really tell <laughs> exactly what, like, if I'm critiquing something or not, or if I'm, like, subverting it. Um, but I think that that gray area is such a, a powerful thing and with humor also. Like, mm-hmm. is, is this supposed to be a joke or is this supposed to be, like, really serious? And I think that that space between is just, like, such a golden area.
Kind of thinking about reacting against this one-size-fits-all approach to classical music, at the University of Michigan, you completed dual degrees in, in composition and in chemical engineering. Something that you said in an interview kind of stuck with me. I wanted to ask about it. Uh, you said in pursuing dual degrees, uh, you can't, you've come to understand how differently engineers and artists see things and, and to kind of love that. Generally speaking, what are some of the key distinctions, do you think, between how engineers and artists think and and do you ever notice these different ways of thinking making their way into your music writing oh totally I always think about this experience I had in my undergrad where I went to Michigan for my undergrad and not too far away from Ann Arbor is Flint Flint Michigan which had a really major water crisis around that time and I just remember such a stark difference in the way that artists and engineers were talking about the crisis. I remember I had some friends in the music school who, you know, their first instinct was to like organize a concert to raise awareness or raise money for for the Flint crisis. And in my engineering classes, it was like totally different response. It was like we had homework problems, you know, about like <laughs> yeah. exactly what was happening, like the corrosion that was happening, what caused it, and and like if we change this, how might this change what's like literally happening um, with the water? And I just like that moment really stuck with me. I was like, wow, there's such a difference in the way that scientists and artists think. But at the same time, I think that, you know, both can really learn from each other. Mm -hmm. And I really love the way that art can speak to an emotional side. It can communicate in ways that sometimes, like, concrete numbers, concrete facts can't. And then sometimes scientists also need, we need them because they're really grounded and they, like, Mm -hmm. really know exactly what's going on and care to actually pay attention to details and, and, and very specific things that control so much of our lives. And I just felt like in my own practice, I, I'm really glad that I, I did both degrees because I I think about the world really differently now. I, I like to see things from multiple angles. I like to question my own beliefs sometimes and, and hear other perspectives. I like to kind of see in and out, you know, of like an issue. And I think that a lot of that is to do with this combination of my science and art background. Yeah. I feel like an engineer can can look at something and, and in their mind take it apart and ask, you know, how do I make this thing do what I want it to do? Whereas uh, an artist will look at something and they'll embody the emotions that it conjures up in them and ask, you know, how do I make this say what I want it to say? I feel like we can make a lot of comparisons between, you know, engineering and, and composition. Do you have, um, like, when you're orchestrating a piece, for example, does, like, an, a little engineering light like, ever click on and you kind of think of it structurally or, like, mechanistically? Yeah, I think so. I think I definitely have an analytical mind. Mm-hmm. I, I really do like picking things apart. When I'm composing, I... I'm actually, like, very methodical, I think, in the way I compose. I often think of composing as just making decisions and, like, <laughs> being able to commit to your decision yeah. and then just making another decision. It's just, like, a series of, of choices that we make. And I think that kind of methodical approach is very much, like, a way an engineer thinks. Okay, I'm going to build this one thing. Okay, now what happens if I build this thing? Oh, will that change it oh maybe I don't want it to change that way maybe I want to change another way like thinking like that is really I think it is a way like taking things apart like that's such an engineering way of thinking and it's funny because I I don't really think my work the way that I engage with that sort of science brain is really the way that a lot of science artists think like I think a lot of people who do engage with that space tend to actually like think about like instrument building or think about 
the actual harmonic spectrum or some sort of data analysis from their music. And I, I tend to not do that. But at the same time, I think that the way that I engage with that is really through this kind of critical mind, like taking things apart or even just socially how I see the world. I think it's very much rooted in this um, combination of the science and art background. You've been very outspoken about your struggles with mental health, particularly in relation to obsessive compulsive disorder, um, and also about the ways that you've come to embrace and, and love the way your mind works. What, when did you first learn of your OCD, and uh, can you share a little bit about how it, it shaped your life? Yeah, I, I first learned I had OCD when I was 12. I mean, honestly, I think my whole life, from when I was born, I was I was always very quirky, and that's like why I would term myself a quirkhead because I didn't know there was a thing of OCD at that time. And I first had a realization when I saw a commercial for this show called Flipping Out, which is about this real estate agent. It was like this reality show about this real estate agent who had OCD and he would do all kind. Of, he would give his cat acupuncture. I mean, it was so over the top, but. I remember first hearing that word OCD and then something clicked and then a teacher in middle school was the first person besides myself to recognize that I might have OCD and she noticed when I would write things because I associate letters and, and words with different connotations and I think about left, I like left better than right and because of the configuration of the letters and then I would you know, the way I would write things, you could see, like, something was up, like, I would write things some more to the left, some more to the right, and, yeah, she noticed that, and then she asked about, like, my other compulsions, and then she said, I think you might have OCD, and then I eventually went to therapy, and I went to a psychologist who diagnosed me, so I think that experience of OCD was, it's funny, because I don't really know a brain that doesn't have that like I just like it's such a part of who I am that I can't it's hard for me to like separate it necessarily as a disorder or something to remove from my brain but at the same time you know OCD has caused me a lot of grief you know with compulsions there was a point in my life where when I was a teenager where every single thing I did basically was related to some sort of compulsion. I mean, even from breathing, from swallowing, the way I was blinking, even like those basic functions, um, I would count the number of times I would do it and I would like not breathe for some time because I thought it was too many times, like for the number I wanted. And that scared me. I mean, it was, it was really dangerous. And yeah, and I had to go through a lot of counseling, a lot of treatment to kind of learn how to I think of it as owning my compulsion, like figuring out I'm in charge, you know, over this compulsion. Maybe I can take a shortcut and not do the full compulsion. Maybe I don't have to wash my hands 10 times before I do. Maybe I can wash it nine and a half and that's good enough. And then just like keep doing that until a compulsion weans away. And that has been a really important part of my own like liberation as a person and I think that combination of embracing my own neurodivergence, but also recognizing that it is something that is painful for me and many other people, I think is just like an important duality for me to recognize. I did want to ask about Quirkhead a little bit. This is a piece that you wrote in 2017 for Tony Arnold and Third Angle String Quartet. And I think this piece lies in a really special place in that it's both deeply personal and it also feels like it's reaching out an empathetic hand. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you wrote this piece? Yeah, yeah, this piece was a really important piece for me because it was the first time I really was embracing my own identity and my music. And I think so much of my work since then has really stemmed from this piece and just own exploration of self that happened when I was writing it. And for me... Growing up, I, for various reasons, I was really quiet about talking about my OCD. I really did not want to share it with other people, partly because I think just culturally in a lot of Asian families, a lot of immigrant families in general, mental health is something that 
is really stigmatized and not talked about. I think even just the way that mental health is talked about in India, for instance, is very different than the U.S. And I mean, there's pros and cons of both. I'm not necessarily saying that one is better than the other. But I think being an American and just having a really different sort of concept of what mental health looks like, how open people are talking about it, was really jarring for my parents. And partly because of that, but also, I don't know, in my own OCD, I I had this, like, fear of even saying the word OCD. I, I thought something bad would happen if I, I said it. And so I, I just, like, never talked about it. And until I went to college and then I just decided I'm going to, you know, when professors ask you to disclose anything you want to, I was like, you know what, I'm just going to tell people. But even then, I was still really careful, you know, about publicizing it too much. And I think in this experience, I, you know, I wrote it for Gabrielina Frank has this wonderful academy that she started where different composers get paired with these great ensembles to workshop and then perform your music eventually. And then also it's just such a warm, positive environment. You know, everybody's it's like a retreat. Everybody goes to this house that's in the woods <laughs> you cook together and it's just like very wholesome and, and and she's just such a lovely human being and she chooses really kind people to you know engage with this program all the time so I think being in that environment I felt a lot safer to share this about myself and so I I just decided you know what I'm gonna do it I'm gonna be brave and and try it and see how people engage with it and how I feel about people engaging with it and yeah so I wrote this piece that it's kind of similar to what we were talking about with Above the Fray like it's funny in a lot of aspects I mean it's so over the top in the beginning where the singer is singing stuff like dog to the left fish to the right and that's related to what I was talking about earlier with me associating different words and letters with different connotations and what people don't know with that piece is that I actually subverted some of my my own like compulsions in that piece like really I would put dog to the right (laughs) fish would be like in the middle somewhere like yeah but I like purposely did the opposite because I thought it'd be interesting for me which nobody knows it's like a personal victory for me to like go against my compulsion and yeah so like there's like these humorous aspects of the piece but then there's also these really vulnerable moments where I wrote the text for this piece and I I have the text saying I'm sorry that I love you I'm sorry that I'm doing all this stuff because I love you and I'm so afraid that you're going to be hurt um if I don't do it and I think that piece kind of is showing a lot of the multiple sides of what OCD looks like you know we always associate it with just the compulsion aspect of it just like the physical movements that people do but there's not as much focus I think on the actual anxiety and the compassion also that kind of underlies a lot of these fears and and the empathy and all those kinds of things and I think my own journey of embracing my own neurodivergence I think that was really important for me to embrace it's my own sense of empathy and I'm, I'm proud that I'm I consider myself a very empathetic person and I think my OCD is a big part of that how it manifests in compulsion is an, another side to my OCD but it's okay to recognize that all of these things are very multifaceted Thank <laughs> you. 
Dog to the left, dog to the left, need to finish. 
didn't make it. I didn't make it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I Can you tell me a little bit about what you have in the works? What's coming up? I am currently working on a youth ensemble piece. It's a really fun project that is kind of rooted in word games and rooted in Mad Libs, which were nice. like these classic oh, word yeah. games where you fill in the blank. And, and with this piece, I'm translating that idea to also like kids choosing their own sounds for each word they choose. And then my piece, also, like, the score is, like, a map like, all these blanks for the kids to have their different sounds in. So it's a really fun project that's a very new thing for me also to explore. <laughs> but beyond that, I also am working on a piece for New York Phil, which is a piece kind of related to this idea of, of motherhood. And I'm playing with the Stabat Mater chant, which, again, this idea of sampling and kind of warping it in a certain way to... Think about, you know, Stabat Mater, the mother is standing, and it's really like a, a Christian and Catholic hymn normally, and I'm not Catholic, but I think it's interesting for me to engage with it as an outsider, as somebody who's thinking about my own, like the women in my life and my mom and like other mothers in my life and, and what that looks like and how motherhood can take many different forms. And especially in, in you know, today's society when motherhood is really in the forefront of the social climate and thinking about abortion and, you know, the amount of attention on the mother is sometimes not really, people don't think about the mother as much. And I think this, my, my piece is kind of related to that idea of what does it look like for, for mothers. So a couple different kinds of projects like that, but some other producing projects I'm, I'm doing here and there, some other video things, but yeah, it's a lot of fun projects that are very different from each other. Thank you so much, Nina, for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks so much for tuning in today. Definitely go check out more of Nina's music at ninashaker.com. The pieces we heard today were Careful Shouts, performed by Timothy McAllister and Liz Ames, Lumina, performed by the Seattle Symphony with conductor Lena Gonzalez-Granados, Turn Your Feet Around, performed by Alarm Will Sound, Above the Fray, the string quartet version performed by the Jack Quartet, 
and Quirkhead, performed by Tony Arnold and the Third Angle String Quartet. I'm Stephen Anthony Rawson. Relevant Tones is a production of Access Contemporary Music, a nonprofit organization with the mission of bringing musical creativity to life every day. Come find out more at acmusic.org.